0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of California Crime Stories. This podcast is brought to you by a mom and daughter podcasting duo. I'm the daughter. I'm the mom. And here we bring you true tales of murder and mystery from the Golden State. Some are old, some are new, some made national news, and some were small town stories. But all of them have piqued our interest over the years, and we know that they'll pique yours too. Maybe you joined us last episode for our deep dive into Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers' escape from Alcatraz and into the island of Alcatraz itself, which played host to a Civil War fort, a notorious prison, and several Native American occupations before being designated a National Historic Landmark. It's been a little while since you heard from us. Unfortunately, a cross-country move and a demanding job have made writing and researching difficult for me these past few months and we've had to put the podcast on the back burner. But we want you to know that we're still out here, keeping up with the world of true crime, and brainstorming future cases to share with you. You know what they say. You can take the podcaster out of California, but you can't take the California out of the podcaster. Or something like that. We appreciate you being patient and sticking with us. While I'm back in California for a few days, we thought we'd record a little update mini-sode for you. Since we released our last episode in May of this year, there have been several notable updates in cases that we shared with you on the podcast.
1: First, in the case of Susan Berman, whose life and death were the focus of episode two. At the time we released our episode, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his friend Susan Berman had been temporarily adjourned due to COVID-19. Well, after a 14-month delay, testimony resumed in the Durst trial, And in September, Robert Durst was found guilty of the first-degree murder of his friend Susan Berman. The jury also found that Robert murdered Susan under special circumstances, including that he had been lying in wait. So can you give us a little insight as to what constitutes that?
0: Yeah, um, I'm going to read from the California Penal Code for just a second because I think it explains What lying in wait means better than we can. Um, But to prove that a defendant has been lying in wait, the prosecution has to prove that the defendant intentionally killed their victim, that the defendant concealed his or her purpose from the person who was killed, that he or she waited and watched for an opportunity to act, That he or she made a surprise attack on the person killed from a position of advantage. And finally, that he or she intended to kill the person by taking the person by surprise. Um, And from what we know about how Susan Berman was murdered and the case that the prosecution made against Robert Durst, I think that it's pretty clear that all of those conditions are met. Um, He caught her by surprise. She was walking towards I think the back bedroom Mm -hmm, and she had her back to him yes she had her back to him she shot him from behind you know she caught him off guard I don't think he was she was expecting him to arrive at the time that he did so I think we can say that he was attacking her catching her by surprise and from a position of advantage and that she wasn't expecting it and she had her back turned so That special condition was met.
1: Okay, so another special circumstance um, that was met, according to the jury, was that uh, Robert had been found guilty of killing a witness. That witness, he feared, was going to tell Westchester County investigators what she knew about the 1982 disappearance of Robert's wife, Kathy McCormick Durst. Uh, At the end of episode two, we left you with an anecdote that we wanted to kind of remind you about from Nick Chavin, a friend of both Susan Berman and Robert Durst. In December of 2014, 14 years after Susan's murder, Chavin and Durst arranged to have dinner. Prior to the dinner, Durst told Chavin that he wanted to talk about Kathy and about Susan. So Chavin and Durst got to the restaurant. They had dinner. The dinner ended, but without any mention of Kathy or Susan. On their way out of the restaurant, Chavin asks Durst, so you want to talk about Susan? And Durst replied, quote, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. So we have no way of knowing at the time, but Nick Chavin's testimony would prove critical to the state's case against Robert Durst. Habib Balian, one of the prosecutors even said in his closing argument that, quote, the case can be summed up in nine simple words. It was
0: her or me. I had no choice. That says it all. But more importantly, after more than 20 years, justice or something resembling justice has been done for Susan Berman and her loved ones. At Durst's sentencing hearing in October, we had the opportunity to hear from several of Susan Berman's family members. Susan's cousins, Denny Marcus and Dave Berman, her niece, Grace Berman, and her son, Sarah Kaufman, all spoke about Susan and about the 20 years they have spent without her. Sarah remembered his mother, Susan, as, quote, eccentric, vivacious, and generous to a fault. Often needy and phobic, a force of nature, but extremely smart and witty. He told the court that life since his mother's passing has been, quote, a daily, soul-consuming, and crushing experience. Referring to Durst, he stated, quote, I've lost everything many times over because of him. And addressing Durst directly, he said, quote, I hope in your final days and hours you will give the McCormick's what little they are asking for. To find Kathy, to lay her to rest appropriately, finally, and at long last. By telling where Kathy is, perhaps you can find some small redemption in an act of humanity. You didn't just murder Kathy, or Morris, or Susan. You also murdered me, and murdered the person I was. All his dreams, and all his hopes, gone. Judge Mark Wyndham sentenced Durst to life in prison without parole, for the murder of Susan Berman. But there is, as Sarah Coffin mentioned in his impact statement, another family still waiting for justice and closure. And that's the family of Kathy McCormick Durst, Robert Durst's wife. Earlier this year, before the murder trial in Los Angeles reached its conclusion, the Westchester County District Attorney's Office reopened its case against Robert Durst for the murder of Kathy McCormick Durst. And on October 19th, Robert Durst was charged with the murder of Kathy McCormick Durst. Kathy's body has never been found, and she was declared legally dead in 2007.
1: And now for another update, this time in the case of Kristen Smart. Back in Episode 3, we recommended that our listeners check out the podcast, Your Own Backyard, which tells the story of the 1996 disappearance of Cal Poly freshman Kristen Smart. The podcast also follows the decades long investigation into Kristen's disappearance and Kristen's parents' tireless efforts to recover their daughter and to find justice for Kristen and closure for themselves. Along the way, we learn quite a lot about the last person to see Kristen smart a young man named Paul Flores, who walked with her from the house party towards her dorm and who remained a person of interest in Kristen's disappearance for 25 years. But we also told you in Episode 6 that in March of this year, the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department named Paul Flores the prime suspect in the disappearance of Kristen Smart for the first time. And that was following a two-day search by law enforcement of the Arroyo Grande property owned and inhabited by Paul Flores' father, Ruben Flores. The investigators brought in both cadaver dogs and ground-penetrating radar and did some digging under the deck of the home on the property based on their theory that Kristen Smart's remains were at some point buried under the home of Ruben Flores. Cadaver dogs alerted to a 1985 Volkswagen Cabriolet stored in the garage, which in 1996 belonged to Paul Flores's sister, Irma Linda, At that time, Irma Linda lived only a mile away from Paul's Cal Poly dorm room. Since the last update we gave you, there have been some other huge developments in the Kristen Smart case. On April 13th, both Paul Flores and his father, Ruben Flores, were arrested in connection with Kristen's disappearance. Paul was charged with murder and Ruben Flores was charged with accessory after the fact the prosecution argues that Paul Flores murdered Kristen Smart while engaging in or attempting to commit a rape. A preliminary hearing was held from early August until late September, in which more than two dozen witnesses testified. There were several expert witnesses whose testimony stood out. Two archaeologists, Philip Haynes and Cindy Arrington, testified that one of the four soil anomalies discovered in Ruben Flores's backyard was consistent in terms of size with a human burial. One of the archaeologists further testified that a stain they found inside that particular soil anomaly resembled a human decomposition stain left behind when a human body decomposes. Forensic serologist Angela Butler testified that a total of 13 soil samples taken from Ruben Flores's property in March and April tested positive for the presence of human blood. Unfortunately, no DNA was detected in any of these samples, either because there wasn't enough to detect, or because there was some but it had been degraded by the elements or by the presence of bacteria. Judge Craig Van Ruyen denied the district attorney's motion to add two additional rape charges against Paul Flores related to separate incidents which occurred in 2011 and 2017. However, the prosecution will admit evidence of prior criminal sexual acts committed by Paul Flores as part of their case against him. Chris Lambert, the podcaster behind Your Own Backyard, was subpoenaed during this preliminary hearing But the judge quashed the subpoena, and he did not testify. After the preliminary hearing, Judge Van Ruyen ruled on September 22nd that there was enough evidence for the case against Paul and Ruben Flores to proceed to trial. Both men have pleaded not guilty, and their trial is set to begin on April 25th, 2022.
0: Next, a little update in the case of Sherry Jo Bates. The Riverside City College student killed in 1966, whose murder has been linked over the years to a series of killings committed in the San Francisco Bay Area by the notorious Zodiac Killer. Sherry Joe's murder and its possible links to the Zodiac were the focus of our fourth episode. In August, the Riverside Police Department announced that a $50,000 reward would be offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Sherry Jo Bates' killer. The reward offer is valid until January 31st, 2022. Anyone with information about the murder of Sherry Jo Bates can contact the Riverside PD's Homicide Cold Case Unit by email at cjb at riversideca.gov. We'll also post the email address in the show notes. And finally,
1: a little update on the search for the Zodiac Killer. Although maybe calling it an update... "Quote unquote," is a little too generous. In October, a group of former law enforcement officers, private investigators, and intelligence officers, calling themselves the Casebreakers, announced that they had identified the elusive serial killer who terrorized California throughout the late 1960s. In their press release, the Casebreakers identified their suspect by name and laid out the evidence they believe they have against him. Now we are not going to be using Casebreaker's suspect's name for a couple of different reasons. First, because a number of the high-profile media outlets that have reported on this story have chosen not to identify the suspect by name. The San Francisco Chronicle, for example, traditionally has not named Zodiac suspects unless law enforcement has confirmed that the suspect was being actively investigated since law enforcement has not yet confirmed that they are looking into this suspect, neither the Chronicle nor we will be identifying him by name. Although we can confirm that this suspect is no longer alive, for the sake of journalistic integrity, for the sake of his and his family's privacy, it seemed to us like the right choice. But we also won't be naming the casebreaker suspect simply because he is not a good suspect. Still, for the sake of keeping you informed, we will share with you the Casebreaker's case against him. Over the years, many investigators have floated the theory that the Zodiac had a military background because a print from a military-style boot was found at several Zodiac crime scenes and because of the Zodiac's apparent knowledge of cryptography. Well, the Casebreaker's suspect did serve in the Air Force. So that's one connection that they draw in the press release. The case breakers also compared photos taken of the suspect, which show scars on his forehead that he sustained in a car accident, to a 1969 police sketch of the Zodiac. The scars in the suspect's photo apparently matched the scars in the police sketch. Okay, so there's your second Zodiac connection. And lastly, the casebreakers claim that an anagram sent by the Zodiac as part of his 340 cipher reveals the suspect's name. Now, in case that doesn't ring a bell, the 340 cipher was a coded letter mailed by the Zodiac to the San Francisco Chronicle, along with a bloody fragment of so- Zodiac victim Paul Stein's shirt in 1969. It's referred to as the 340 cipher because it contains a total of 340 characters. The 340 cipher was more complex than other ciphers previously sent by the Zodiac and remained unsolved until December of 2020, when it was finally cracked by a codebreaker, computer programmer, and mathematician. Although the case breakers mostly agree with the results of this team's decryption, They say that the trio missed the anagram, which reveals the suspect's name. So the casebreakers base their case against the Zodiac suspect on those three points, the military background, the forehead scars, and the 340 cipher anagram. But the casebreakers also claim to have proof that their Zodiac suspect killed Sherry Jo Bates in Riverside. So what exactly connects this suspect to Sherry Joe's murder in Riverside? Well, the casebreakers can't place this suspect in Riverside at the time of the murder, but they can place him at an Air Force base in Riverside County at some point <laughs> in the 1960s. Wow, amazing. Okay. <laughs> the Riverside police recovered a men's Timex wristwatch with a broken watch band at the murder scene which they believed came off of the killer during the struggle. Frantic examiners also noted that the watch was splattered with paint. Investigators believed that the watch may have been purchased at a military PX. Well, the casebreakers argue that the watch could have belonged to the suspect because of his military connection and also because he was working as a house painter at the time of the murder. A size 10 military style boot print was also found at the murder scene, which does match this suspect's shoe size. Also, several brown hairs were found clenched in Sherry Joe's hand, presumably belonging to the murderer. Well, what do you know? The casebreaker suspect also had brown hair.
0: So, the casebreakers connect their suspect to the Zodiac based on his military connection and forehead scars. And on the 340 cipher anagram. They also connect their suspect to Sherry Joe's murder based on the paint spattered watch and military style boot print recovered at the scene and the hairs found in Sherry Joe's hand. Finally, for good measure, they connect the Zodiac murders back to Sherry Joe's murder, citing the same similarities in phrasing and spelling between the Riverside letters and the Zodiac letters, which we discussed in our episode. Ergo, their suspect is the Zodiac, right? Well, we don't think so. <laughs> For lots of reasons. Here we go. The evidence that supposedly connects the casebreaker suspect to the Zodiac murders and to Sherry Jo Bates's murder is incredibly flimsy. The Zodiac's supposed military connection, which so many people rely heavily on when they're building a case against a suspect, is an ironclad. Just because someone wears military-style boots and or a watch that may have been purchased at a military PX doesn't mean that they're in the military. Civilians could easily purchase military surplus clothing at that time, and it wasn't uncommon. We definitely talked about this in our episode. Mm -hmm. Yes, the forehead scars in the suspect's photos do resemble the lines drawn on the forehead in the Zodiac police sketch. But we're talking about a sketch which is based on a sighting of the Zodiac from a police car at night. Both the lines in the sketch... And the lines in the suspect's photos just look like forehead wrinkles. <laughs> That's what they are. <laughs> They're not remarkable or unique. Neither is the fact that the casebreaker suspect has brown hair. <laughs> that is not compelling evidence, you guys. As far as the supposed anagram in the 340 cipher, the leader of the team who actually cracked the 340 cipher last December weighed in and said that it is unlikely that the suspect's name is hidden in the cipher. He also said that when working with anagrams, it's easy to manipulate them to yield basically whatever combination of letters or numbers you are looking for. Plus, the casebreakers don't seem able to place their suspect in the area of any of the Zodiac murders at the time they took place. So, for us, the casebreaker suspect isn't a good suspect in the Zodiac murders. He isn't a good suspect in Sherry Jo Bates' murder. And law enforcement agrees. Both the FBI and the San Francisco Police Department stated in response to the casebreakers' press release that their Zodiac investigations remain open and that the evidence presented by the casebreakers does not appear to be conclusive. Officer Ryan Railsback of the Riverside PD also weighed in, saying, quote, Is there a chance that he killed Cherry Joe Bates? No. If you read what they put out, it's all circumstantial evidence. It's not a whole lot, end quote. So that's what we have to share with you about the Case Breaker Zodiac suspect. And just so you know, the suspect is brought to you by the same investigative team that claims to have solved the D.B. Cooper cover-up, the Atlanta child murders, and the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. That is all news to us and to all of mainstream media, (laughs) but okay. Congrats, you guys. Great work. Where were we when they were solving all of these crimes? (laughs) Like, we weren't even paying
1: attention.
0: Guess not. (laughs) We, of course, read the Casebreaker's press release and sourced information from it, so we're going to include it in our show notes for our listeners to read, should they so desire. As we said, the suspect's name and photos are included in this press release. But we also want to warn you that the press release includes a crime scene photo from Sherry Joe Bates' murder in Riverside. We chose not to share this particular photo with you in our usual collection of photos on social media because Sherry's body is visible in the photo. And y'all know that sharing photos of deceased victims is not our cell. Just a little content warning should you decide to check out the Case Breakers press release.
1: So that's all we have to share with you today in terms of updates. Uh, But even though this is just a mini-sode, we'd be remiss if we didn't end with a recommendation. Because it's been far too long.
0: So, partner. Our recommendation for this episode is a TV show that we both came to quite late in the game. It's been on TV and much loved in both the UK and the US since 2010. But I've come back to this show time and time again since I started watching it about this time last year, and I know you have too. It's the Great British Baking Show, y'all. I've shared another one of my comfort shows with you guys on the podcast. It's called Somebody Feed Phil. But the Great British Baking Show is really my comfort show par excellence. I've seen every season available to stream on Netflix several times over, I've seen all the holiday episodes and every YouTube video they post. (laughs) And whenever I feel sad or stressed or need to wind down or just want to put something on in the background, I go back to The Great British Baking Show. And I love a good cooking competition show. We all do. Top Chef, Chopped, Nailed It, we're here for it all. But The Great British Baking Show is really the antithesis to the American cooking competition show. The contestants always support each other. There is no drama, no alliances, no yelling, no cursing, no insults. There are no team challenges, so everyone is evaluated on their own merit. And if you have a bad week, it's okay. The contestants are evaluated week to week, so every new week means a fresh start. And although the challenges are timed, there's almost always enough time for contestants to remake an element of their dish if something didn't turn out right the first time. And the feedback from the judges is constructive, but never petty or personal. All this to say, the Great British Baking Show is the peaceful, wholesome, (laughs) non-toxic entertainment (laughs) that you deserve. So if you're a little behind the pop culture times like us, and you haven't seen the Great British Baking Show yet, there are nine full seasons currently available to stream on Netflix, plus some holiday specials. So that's all we have for you all today. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of California Crime Stories. If you have any questions or feedback for us, or if you want to suggest a case that you think we should cover in a future episode, send us an email at feedback at If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you subscribed and gave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To everyone who has already left us a review, your positive feedback means a lot. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the ccs pod there we're posting photos of the important people places and things you're hearing about in each episode and keeping you updated about upcoming episodes so check it out california crime stories is researched written and produced by your hosts with artwork also provided by us our theme is arcadia by cody martin thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time Bye. bye